we at the heart. We start to question God's goodness. We start to question whether we can actually trust him. You are walking into the darkness with that light. Congratulations, you earned it. Everybody. It's good to have you here today. In the line of the witch in the wardrobe, Narnia is under the curse of evil, the curse of the wicked. And the, the prophecy about Aslan gets spoken this way. Wrong will be right when Aslan comes in sight. At the sound of his roar, sorrows will be no more. When he bares his teeth, winter meets its death. And when he shakes his mane, we shall have spring again. If you've read the book, if you've seen the movie, which is not as good as the book, but it's okay, you see this visual of, of spring and green overtaking winter, overtaking the barrenness. And that's the picture when Jesus comes on the scene in the book of Matthew. The people of Israel have been longing for God's kingdom to break in, and they are in the midst of uh, oppression under Rome. And they have seen uh, lots of of darkness and death, and they have been praying for the Messiah. They've been praying for God's kingdom to break in. They've been praying for the restoration promise to come to fruition. And Jesus comes into Galilee in Matthew chapter 4, and he says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is here. And we read that, and for us, you know, we try to put our our minds and our hearts in the context of what was going on in the original hearers of that, because that would have been earth shattering. This, this kingdom of God, this restoration of all things is here. And then Jesus healed people. Jesus freed the oppressed. He demonstrate this is what the kingdom looks like when it breaks in. That sorrow and death and disease are obliterated. And then he goes up on top of a mountain and he calls his disciples to him, his closest followers. But all of these massive crowds follow him up the mountainside. They're auditing the class, right? And they... Listen in as Jesus describes in words what the kingdom is like. As he paints this picture of this life-giving kingdom breaking in on the darkness. And so that's the Sermon on the Mount. That's where we are for this whole semester. And we're taking it bit by bit, just incrementally, so that we can dig down deep. But not just so that we can, can dig down deep for information's sake but for transformation's sake. 
so that we can allow the word of God to read us as we read the word. Matthew 5 through 7 is the Sermon on the Mount. And today I want us to think about four phrases that describe the Beatitudes, the first few verses of, of Matthew. And here are the phrases, look up, look back, look in, and look out. The first few Beatitudes or blessings we'll use look up. That's what we talked about last week. Um, the whole crowd gathers with the disciples, and Jesus begins to describe life in the kingdom, not with a bunch of commands, but actually with blessings. And last week we said that the word blessing doesn't really cut it. It's more like congratulations. It's blessings on. It's not hashtag blessing. It's congratulations. I, I got, um, you know, spam mail this week, uh, and I don't know if it's real or not, but it, it said, congratulations, you earned it. And I was like, what did I earn? I earned $5 off at Dick's Sporting Goods. And so I'm, I'm pretty excited about that. But, but evidently, I earned it because some, some time in the past, I purchased something there. And so now I've earned, five, I've earned $5 off. I'm feeling pretty good about that. Usually, it's how congratulations come. So it's like, you deserve this. You know, you worked hard. Congratulations. But Jesus comes on the scene and he says, congratulations, you've done nothing. <laughs> congratulations, you are the poor in spirit, but now yours is the kingdom of heaven. Congratulations, you are grieving, you are in mourning. But now comfort, the very presence of God is going to come comfort you. Congratulations, you who are powerless because the earth is yours. Congratulations, you who hunger and thirst after righteousness, you who have this desperation for justice, for equity, for things to be made right, because you will be filled up. Jesus comes and he proclaims congratulations. He proclaims these promises, these blessings on the broken. These first four Beatitudes are, are need Beatitudes. And Jesus starts with, with the poor and the grieving and the powerless. And then this fourth Beatitude, this one that says, blessed are you who hunger and thirst after righteousness. That, that's kind of a bridge to this next section. If the first four Beatitudes are, are need Beatitudes, then he flows that into help Beatitudes. And here's the word I want us to get today, because I think this is a, a helpful image. This is a, a conduit. Um, if you've done any construction or if you would crawl around above the ceiling, you would see tons of pipes. And some of those have wires and some of those carry water. And conduit, conduit is a piece of metal, a piece of plastic that is open on both ends. And so something comes in and something goes out. If something comes in and doesn't go out, then you have a problem, you know? Then you have to call the plumber because something is stopped up there. But conduit is supposed to be open-ended. And what Jesus is describing in the Beatitudes is a conduit of blessing, that we receive God's blessing and we give God's blessing. 
that we receive God's mercy and we give God's mercy, that we receive God's peace and we give God's peace. And so we come to him open-handed. And sometimes there are obstacles to us actually receiving these good gifts and these good congratulations from, from God. So that's part of my prayer for us today that we would come open-handed, but then also that we would leave open-handed so that we can be a conduit of grace for others. So if you'd like to know where things are going, that's where things are going, okay? Last week was, was look up. And this is a, a place of desperation. When I'm flat on my back, all I can do is look up, right? And as we look up, we see the grace of of God breaking through. But the next three Beatitudes invite us to look back at God's mercy, at his track record, and then to to look in at our own heart as the center of our affections and motivations, and then to look out at the chaos and the brokenness of the world as we become agents of reconciliation and peace. So look back. Matthew 5 verse 7 says this. It says, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. When I uh, was growing up, I grew up at this children's home in Oklahoma, which was an awesome place to grow up. But also, a lot of my friends were uh, kind of, um, well, our friendship was how do I put this? They were mean, okay? <laughs> I, I, uh, I had this friend named David. He was like twice the size of I was. And we were, I would say we were good friends. But when I look back, it's like he, he totally was a bully. <laughs> and so he, he would do this. He would, he would grab my hands and he would bend my fingers back and he would say, say mercy. And I was like, No. Say mercy, and my fingers are starting to break, you know. Mercy. He goes, ha, I got you. You know, sweet, sweet guy, sweet guy. <laughs> That's a picture of mercy that is kind of the Webster's definition. It is extending um, mercy or forgiveness or uh, relief to someone when you are in the power to do the, the opposite. When you are in the power to punish or you are in the power to, to inflict pain and to take your foot off the gas pedal and to give mercy. The Bible has a little bit, little bit different definition of mercy because God's mercy is perfect. God's mercy is eternal. God's perfect mercy looks like this. It's God being patient. God extending patience to those who deserve to be punished. Mercy is not something that God owes us, but is something that God extends in kindness and grace to those who don't deserve it. And so the writer of Hebrews says this in chapter 4, let's then with confidence draw near the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. <coughs> Excuse me. In Romans chapter 12, Romans 12 is this incredible chapter. And Paul makes this shift. He's, he's been laying out this case of, of God's love and of man's need. 
And, and then in the first verse of Romans 12, he says, Therefore, in light of God's mercy, don't conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by renewing your mind, right? Offer your bodies as living sacrifices. In other words, in view of God's mercy, be all in with God. Your life being a life of worship. But in view of God's mercy. So it's not this empty religion where you have to deserve or earn something to get congratulations. It is rather this fixation on God's mercy that has been played out in the pages of Scripture, but also in the pages of your own life. And as we look at God's mercy, as we look in this review mirror of where God has been with humanity, we get a different view of God. A lot of us, maybe even in this room, have a distorted view of God because we have seen God through the lens of our own comfort or our own timing. And so when things didn't go how we thought they should go, or when our definition of happiness seem to be different than God's definition of happiness, or when the timing was off and it wasn't on our agenda, on our calendar, how things played out, then we, we start to question God's goodness. We start to question whether we can actually trust him. But as you look at the whole of scripture, this is why we have to keep in the word. <laughs> you see, from generation to generation, from page to page, from chapter to chapter, God is merciful. God is abundant in his grace. His love has no boundaries. And if we look and take an assessment of our own storyline, we see the same thing. No matter what your story is, no matter how you're walking into this room today, God sees you. God knows you. God has already extended a hand of mercy to you. It allows us to see ourselves differently. We tend to go kind of off the rails one of two ways, either kind of self-congratulations or self-condemnation, right? We either are, are really involved in pride or in shame. But in view of God's mercy, we can see ourselves the way that he sees us. Deeply loved. As friends of God, we see ourselves the, uh, Titus says, when the kindness and love of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. So we get an appropriate view of our sin in light of an, an appropriate view of his grace. But then that does one other thing. As we are a conduit of his mercy, as we receive it, as we come to him open-handed and receive his grace and love for us, then we, we don't keep that to ourselves. The more his grace gets in our hearts, the more that we realize how much we are deeply loved, it frees us to love other people. We can move out of this comparison game. We can move out of this, this hierarchy of, well, I've got this much of my crap together compared to that person. I'm feeling pretty good about myself. I'm, pretty, I'm a pretty good guy. 
when we are leveled by not only our awareness of our sin and brokenness, but on top of that, an awareness of God's love and grace, then we in that space are free to extend his mercy to other people. Does that make sense? In Matthew chapter 18, Jesus emphasizes this verse in Luke 6. He says, be merciful as your heavenly Father is merciful. And in, in Matthew 18, Peter comes to him, and he wants to know the boundaries of mercy. You know, Peter is like, he wants to know what can I get away with and still be in good grace with God, right? He's like, we're all the same. We're all like that. It's like, how, how close to the line can I get without falling off, right? So what are, what, are, what are the boundaries of mercy? And Peter says, so should I forgive my brother seven times? And then he steps back because he's feeling pretty good about that. That feels pretty generous. You know, that's way beyond what the law requires. And so he's expecting some props back from Jesus. And so he said, seven times? And uh, Jesus says, Peter, not seven times. He goes, I thought so. Yeah. Yeah. That's uh, just who I am, Jesus. I'm, I'm, I'm like, I'm, I'm a merciful person. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's just me being me. You know, seven times. That was, ex- that was extravagant, wasn't it? And Jesus says, Peter. He says, yeah. And Jesus says, not seven times. I know. I know. He goes, 70 times seven. Peter's face fell. Jesus says, forgive, be merciful, extend grace to the extent that you've received it. And then he told this parable. He told this parable, parable about this king and this servant. And the servant owed the king a million dollars. And the king brought the servant into his throne room and said, you need to pay up. And the servant said, there's no way. And what he was deserving of was was prison. And the king said, I am removing the debt from you. So he walks out a free man. This huge, huge debt has been completely cleared by this king. So the servant walks out the door and immediately on the street, he sees this other guy that owes him 16 cents. So he grabs him around the neck and says, pay up. The guy says, I can't pay you. And so he has that guy thrown into prison. And the king finds out about it, and he's livid. And he calls the servant back in, and he says, I freed you from a debt of a million dollars, and you can't even have mercy on someone who owes you 16 cents. And he throws that guy into prison. And the idea is the one who is forgiven much should forgive much. That God's mercy and grace has no limits. And when we experience that, we should extend that. Because we are conduits of mercy. Ephesians chapter 4 says, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. When we 
experience and encounter the depth of that love, how could we not extend it? Merciful is being compassionate, being loving, not just feelings or emotions, but expressing mercy in tangible ways. It is being sensitive to others' pain and to their circumstances. It is empathizing and extending forgiveness and love and help. It is compassionate morality. One writer said, the way of Jesus is not only one that makes you morally tough, but also mercifully soft. And the promise for the merciful is that they will receive mercy. Isn't that cool? That's the only beatitude that is the promise is the same as the blessing, which goes back to our conduit. (laughs) We receive God's mercy and we give God's mercy. We receive God's mercy and we give God's mercy. There's an overflow of the life of grace. Brendan Manning was this priest that was an alcoholic. And this guy rescued him. A friend rescued him. He was literally on skid row. And a friend brought him back and nursed him back to health and found him help. And then Brendan Manning wrote these amazing books on God's grace. And one of his quotes was this, we never lay hold of our nothingness before God and consequently we never enter into the deepest reality of our relationship with him. But when we accept ownership of our powerlessness and of our helplessness, when we acknowledge that we are paupers at the door of God's mercy, then he can make something beautiful out of us. So, Can you just look at your hands? Dave, Dave had us do this earlier. Can you look at your hands for a bit? Are you willing to receive God's mercy and grace today? I want you to think about that because uh, often, you know, I have a tendency to come very close-fisted to God, very self-protective, because actually receiving grace and mercy is is putting ourselves in a a place of need, and I don't want to need anything but I do. I do. So are we willing to receive his mercy today? And then are we willing to extend it to others? Is there any obstacle that is keeping us from extending grace to someone else? Have we been offended in some way that it is just so hard to forgive? We forgive in proportion to how we've been forgiven, which is much. Okay. So look back at a merciful God. Second one of three is to look in. The the scripture is this, Matthew chapter 5, verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. In contrast to the Pharisees who were all about perceptions and appearances and in the look of a righteous person, God is looking at the heart. 
Jesus quotes Isaiah at one point. And he says, these people honor me. He's talking about the religious leaders. He said, they honor me with their lips, but their hearts, their, oh man, their hearts are far from me. Jesus had tons of ridicule for the kind of religion that was showy because what he is after is our heart, the humility of a life centered on God, the heart in scripture and, and really uh, the way that the Bible talks about it is the center of everything. It's the center of a feeling and emotion and courage and affection, enthusiasm, personality. It's who we are at the core. It's not who people want you to be. It's not the profile you are managing. It's beyond what we do. It's beyond our GPA. It's beyond our work. It's beyond our resume. It's beyond our family. It's beyond even the baggage that we're carrying from our past. Who are we at the heart, at our core? What do we care about? What motivates us? What are we affectionate toward? How do we spend our time? Who are we when no one is looking? What keeps us up at night? Who are we at the core? We live from the heart, but we also love from the heart. Dallas Willard talks about this transformation. And the spirit puts us into a process where he brings every element in our being, working from inside out into harmony with the will of God, the kingdom of God. It's this inner transformation that is accomplished through purposeful interaction with the grace of God in Christ. So we watch, keep a watch over our heart. Luke 6 says, out of the overflow of our heart, the mouth speaks. So our, our words and our thoughts and our actions flow out of what is really going on in the depths of who we are. And we are, are obedient to God when we are in step and cooperating with the Spirit. John 15 says, you will bear really good fruit. When we're trying to live for ourselves, that doesn't go so well. Authenticity is a, is a big thing, right? It's like you need to be your authentic self. That's what we hear everywhere. I want to read something really, it's really brief. It's brilliant. And if I didn't tell you it was written 150 years ago, you could have sworn someone wrote it yesterday. <laughs> the guy's name is J.C. Ryle. He was a preacher in Liverpool. He actually, I was doing some research on his life. He actually came from lots of, of wealth and kind of pretentiousness. And so I think it's so, so cool that he writes about authenticity. God leveled him. He experienced poverty. He experienced uh, hardship. He turned his life to Jesus. And this is what he says about authenticity. Listen to this. What do I mean when I use the word authentic? I mean that which is genuine and sincere and honest and thorough. I mean that which is not inferior and hollow and formal and false and counterfeit and sham and nominal. Authentic is not mere show. It's not pretense. It's not skin-deep deep feeling. It is not temporary profession that works only on the outside. It is something inward. 
It is solid. It is substantial. It is intrinsic. It is living. It is lasting. He says this, if you want to know whether your religion is authentic, test it by the place it occupies in the depths of who you are. It's not enough that it is in your head. It's not enough that it is on your lips. It's not enough that it is in your feelings. It must be in your heart. It must hold the reins. It must sway the affections. It must lead the will. It must direct the taste. It must influence the choices and decisions. It must fill the deepest, inmost place in your soul throughout your journey from grace to glory. Jesus says, blessings on the pure in heart, for they will see God. They will experience the power and presence of Jesus in their life, both now and forever. So look in. Look in with an openness, being a conduit of God's grace and holiness. Here's the third one. This is a little bit quicker. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Peacemakers. Peace is elusive. For every one year of peace, there have been 13 years of war. And it's not just external. There is this desire for peace inwardly as well. It was Thoreau, he said, the mass of men lead lives of quiet desperation. And Augustine, he said, God, you've made us for yourself, and the heart of man is restless until it finds rest in you. There's a desire for this inner rest, this, this inner peace. In, throughout the Old Testament and even now in, in Jewish circles, there's a really cool greeting this word shalom. Say shalom to the person next to you. Yeah, just, just feels good, doesn't it? Shalom. Here's what you just said to your neighbor. You, you said peace and flourishing and wholeness. It's this, it's this internal peace, this body, soul, and spirit being, being whole with, with yourself not compartmentalized, but integrated. It is a, a peace with God. It is vertical peace, especially in light of his covenant love for you. It is also peace with one another. It's this horizontal peace, our relationships with, with brothers and sisters. And so Jesus pronounces shalom on those who create shalom. He, he pronounces blessing on those who are peacekeeping, who are bringing reconciliation that is both vertical and horizontal. He says, blessed are the peacemakers. And again, we are called to be a conduit of peace. As we receive the peace, and we've been reconciled to God through Christ, then we are freed up to advocate for peace, to bring reconciliation for others. May, uh, Romans 15, I love this. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and, say it really loudly, 
Peace, yes, as you trust in him so that you may, what? Overflow. You, you see the conduit imagery? So that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Let me, let me throw this at you. I think there's a, a macro piece, keeping, peacemaking, and a, a micro peacemaking. There's a, there's a, a macro shalom creating and a micro shalom creating. I believe really strongly that there are people in this room that uh, are being called into places and roles of influence where you will be able to leverage your power and your authority and your, uh, your expertise on behalf of those who are in need. I believe that there are people in this room who will become managers and doctors and lawyers and, and government workers and who will become missionaries and who will become CEOs and who will become people who are in places to advocate for the poor and the oppressed, either in the workplace or just in culture at large. Some of you are being called right now specifically into those kinds of vocations because that's your heart. You have a heart for justice. You have a heart for equity. You have a heart for those who are victims of sex trafficking, those who are victims of racial injustice. You have a heart for the poor. You have a heart for the elderly, the disabled. You will be in places of power to leverage that power for the least of these. I think there is also this, this street level, more micro peace making, this, this shalom giving and creating that all of us are called into. It is this one-on-one. -on -one. It is creating circles of reconciliation everywhere you are. Everywhere you go as a light bearer, as a follower of Jesus, you are walking into the darkness with that light, with the presence and the power of Jesus. And as Jesus is bringing reconciliation in your life, you through him are bringing reconciliation to your broken family, to your broken friendships, to the places where you work and the places where you live. You are carriers of his peace. You are a conduit, receiving it and giving it. This is your calling. This is my calling. Peacemaking is compassionate, it's active, it's relational, it's creative, it's surprising, but it's also disruptive. It tends to be offensive because it pushes against the way that things are, and this often leads to resentment and degradation and even persecution. So this isn't just being peace-loving. This is peacemaking. This is taking action, often at the expense of our own comfort.
This is entering into the chaos, into the conflict. Beatitude number four, blessings on those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for justice, for things to be made right. And then Jesus says, blessings on those who have taken that desperation and put it into action. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will receive, they will be called the children of God, which is really cool. You'll be called the children of God, the adopted ones, the reconciled, the reconnected. So once again, we come with open hands. Are we willing to receive God's reconciliation through Christ? Are we willing to admit that we have, because of our own sin and our own selfishness, been disconnected from from God? Jesus says, repent. This is the posture of repentance. It is turning around from from the direction that we were on that was all about self and turning toward Christ and his kingdom, and it is coming open-handed to receive it. Let me read a couple scriptures as we lead into communion this morning. If you're you're passing out communion, can you get that ready for us? This first first, um, scripture talks about the fact that we've been reconciled to God And the second one talks about we've been reconciled to each other. So listen to this. When we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. So now we can rejoice in our wonderful new relationship with God because our Lord Jesus Christ has made us friends of God. Say, I'm a friend of God. Yeah. Hello, friends of God. Therefore, since we have been made right in God's sight, which is justification, right? By faith, we have peace with God because of what Jesus Christ, our Lord, has done for us. It's all on him. And then that leads into Ephesians 2. Christ brought us together through his death on the cross. So it's not just Jesus died for my sin, but Jesus died for my sin and put me into family. Christ brought us together through his death on the cross, and the cross got us to embrace. And that was the end of hostility. Christ came and preached peace to you outsiders and peace to us insiders. He's talking about like Gentiles and Jews there, right? He treated us as equals and so made us equals. And through him, we both share the same spirit and have equal access to the Father. So our hearts have been transformed by the mercy and reconciling grace of Christ through the cross. Would you go ahead and pass out the bread and and the cup? Each week we take communion together. And this is... is, uh, really encapsulates everything we were talking about today. There is a uh, 
a looking up as we take communion, a realization that we are poor in spirit and that we are grieving and that we are powerless, that we are hungry for what is right. And there is a a looking back at, at the mercy of God that he displayed so vividly through the cross of Christ. There's a looking in. There's a a taking an assessment of our motivation and our affections. Asking very honestly, Jesus, are are you Lord of every part of my life? Because I want you to. So can we look up, back, and in as we take the bread and take the cup this morning? Oh, to grace, how great a day.